Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics, to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges, and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Jacques Melberg. Jacques is a third-year PhD candidate with a double degree in justice and psychology. He is also a research assistant and currently tutors at QUT and USC. In this episode, Jacques and Jody discuss his current work on his PhD project, taking care of your mental health as a student, and some of the hard stuff that can happen at uni outside the classroom, like financial troubles, homelessness, and struggles with family. Without any further ado, Jacques Melberg. So, who are you? Who am I? Who am I? Well, my name is Jacques, and I studied a Bachelor of Psychology and a Bachelor of Justice straight out of high school. I then went on to do my honours in justice, and then I followed that through to my PhD, which is what I'm doing now. So as of a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, I have exactly one year left of my PhD, so it's all starting to come together. It's all starting to feel real, and all of the learning that I've done actually feels like learning now. I can explain things and have it make sense without second-guessing myself quite as much. So, yeah. How did that happen? Like, I swear you were an honor student, like, last year. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. I guess COVID really speeds up our perception of time. Like, first, you know, week into me sitting at my brand new desk for my PhD, I get an email, I think it was the Friday, being like, all right, guys, work from home, have fun. <laughs> so I'd set up my desk, I had all my teas lined up, all of my decorations that I was so prepared for, and instantly work from home. So manage that sort of thing. Yeah. Wow, that's intense. We're going to come back to your undergraduate degree, but why did you decide to do a PhD? Why did I decide to do a PhD? Well, I found that I really enjoyed research. I mean, I've always been that type of person to want to know everything about a topic. I struggled a bit at the start of my PhD because I didn't know what topic I wanted to choose because I know me as a person, I could be given any topic run with it and it'll be my passion for however long it needs to be my passion for. But coming up with an idea all on your own for someone like me is a real struggle. Mm. So I did this honors thing. I had a project that was second hand, secondary data from a supervisor. Um, he said, perform the analysis, understand why we're doing the analysis, put it into one neat package and write up a thesis. And I was like, yeah, this is good. I really enjoy this. I like this style of writing. I get to, you know, works for me. Let's do the PhD. But yeah, struggled with the uh, topic for a while there. I think a lot of people do, but for me in particular, I really need something to be my starting start and jump off point. And what was your What was your process for making that decision? For going into the PhD? For no, your decision on your topic. Oh, it was a lot of floundering actually. So I was. I knew that I wanted to do something um, related to fear of crime because that was where my honours was. And I thought there was a lot more to explore there just in terms of what I already knew and what I sort of enjoyed reading about. 
it was a lot of floundering because there's a lot of different directions you can go with fear of crime, but also there's like over 50 years worth of research there. So there's a lot of things that have already been done and finding your niche that is important and, you know, something that's original was pretty hard, especially when you've got so many things that have already been done. So for me, a lot of help from my supervisors. My supervisor eventually said, well, we know you're interested in behaviors. I wanted to know about how people respond to their worry about crime. And I have a psych background and I said, well, here's this social psych theory called construal level theory of psychological distance. Maybe we could apply it to fear of crime and see where we go. And so I read up on this construal level theory of psychological distance, which is a bit of a mouthful, and all of the moving parts just became my interest. I'm like, yes, I, I can see how this would work. I can see how this fills that niche. I can see how it ties into the behavioral aspects of what I wanted to look into. Let's do it. So after all that floundering, one of my supervisors still kind of came to my rescue, which was which was great. But yeah, I, in the end, decided that was the, the theory I wanted to work with. So. That's cool, though, because one of the things that I love about supervising HDR students, high career research students, is that kind of collaborative problem solving yeah. that happens and watching somebody become a much bigger expert than I am in their little niche area. So mm. tell me about your project. <laughs> okay. Okay, so at it, my, the core of my project, I'm trying to understand how and why people perceive their risk of criminal victimization. So why do we, in situations where there's not an immediate threat of crime, feel as if there is an immediate threat of crime. You know, we walk into a train station that's littered with graffiti, and although there are no people around, we may feel worried about crime. There's something that happens cognitively with our risk perception. We know risk perception is a cognitive process. We process information about our immediate environment, and that informs then how we feel. That process has largely been a bit of a black box. We can't understand what those processes really look like because of the way that the fear of crime literature is set up. So a lot of fear of crime literature takes your variables like gender, age, and they sort of just shove them into these statistical models and they say, yes, this one predicts this one and this one predicts that and all of that equals worry. And while that's great for telling us whether those things predict worry about crime, it doesn't tell us why. So for example, we don't know why women tend to view crime more beyond more hypothesizing and more speculation. And so my project has this existing theory and the benefit of an existing theory is that it's established, it's um, been demonstrated to work in other contexts and it provides explanations for why the processes in that theory work. So in this case I have this theory that explains why these cognitive processes work and I'm applying it to a bunch of other cognitive processes. So the idea is if the theory works, which my data at the moment says that it does, we have an explanation for why and how. Now, the theory itself has a couple of moving parts. It's used a lot in consumer behavior because uh, if we can make money off of it, it garners a lot of attention. But basically, contra-level theory of psychological distance describes how we mentally transcend our here and now to picture and imagine events that are not happening in our here and now. A good example of that is like your shower thoughts, right? You can picture these imaginary situations and you can picture yourself having conversations with people or whatever it might be. That's an example of transcending your here and now to construe 
an event. And so the idea of the theory is that the more detailed our picture of this imagined event is, that's called a lower construal level and the closer it feels to us. So psychological distance is about how close or far away our mental representation of an event is. So for example, in terms of fear of crime, the idea is that if I have a vivid, detailed mental image of me falling victim to crime in my current location, then I'm going to think that crime is closer to me, like it's going to happen to me soon, it's going to happen to me in my current location, it's going to happen to me specifically, not someone else, and it's going to be a likely thing that's happened. And that makes me worried about crime. So all of those things are your cognitive processes, and the explanation is for worry. So a lot of moving parts. It took a while for me to um, fully understand it. What's your data set? Um, so my data set is two surveys. A lot of the theory in interdisciplinary re re uh, research is experimental. They have people randomly assigned to different conditions, they have everything preset out, and they have these specific diagnostic tools that they use. They fill out a questionnaire, they do this specific task, and then we measure it. But with fear of crime, we can't exactly use those experimental conditions to understand fear of crime because it happens sort of a little bit more naturally. And so my data set is, my first data set is a pilot survey. So I had to develop and adapt the psychological distance measures into new survey items so that I could measure them in the context of fear of crime. And that took a lot of um, back and forth with supervisors, consulting interdisciplinary literature, because in this specific instance, there had only been one person previously to try this. But again, they were in experimental conditions. So my first study was seeing whether these items were any good. And so far, I've done that analysis. I've written that article. And basically, it says that, yes, it is good. Uh, those measures do capture the thing we think it does, and they're a pretty good indicator for worry. Now, my second data set aims to explore the different factors that could also be impacting on that. So now I'm bringing back in, like, how does gender play a role in this process? All these different dimensions. So the second data set is saying, yes, these items have already worked. Let's see what else we can do with them with a larger sample. You seem like you're still pretty excited about your project. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I, as I said, the more time I invest in something, the more I get into it, the more I enjoy it. So even if at the start, if this was a different topic and I wasn't that interested in it, I'd still be in the same position at this point in time because, I don't know, I just, yeah, really into just knowing things because it's exciting to know things. Knowing things is so exciting. <laughs> but it does get to a point, I think, in any PhD, maybe you're the exception to this general rule that I found where people are just like, I'm so over this, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I think so. I think I've had a lot of good support from my, my supervisors. So I have someone who's a content expert in fear of crime. I've got someone who's really good with understanding theories. And together, that really helps to inform like all of the different aspects. Like I have a good range of expertise that helps me anytime I come across a different challenge. So it's been very rarely where I've come across something and just not known what to do. I've either been able to explore my own solutions to a problem and then check with my supervisors who understand. Yeah, there's never been a situation where we're like, oh, we don't know how to deal with that, you know? So Those things happen though. Yes. Um, so what was it like for you transitioning from an undergraduate in a justice psychology degree to working, I guess, on a more 
one-on-one collegial level mm. with people who had presumably been your lecturers at some point. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how, like, on a social level, it's just like completely different because you get to see that all the academics are just real people like i know that in undergrad i was really scared to approach any of the unit coordinators having conversations always felt like i'm wasting their time sort of thing having this hindsight now it's like they're just people they they live lives they go to their homes they have interests that are you know outside of uni but also they (laughs) have really interesting research passion and they'll talk your ear off as much as i will about their interests which is great so on that social level yeah it was a bit of an eye-opener really sort of changed my mind i think my first couple of months of my my honors project i saw one of the other academics at my local bar and i was like oh hello like with their dog and everything so just reinforcing people are people but i suppose on an academic level for me i really appreciated being able to get into the nitty-gritty of just one subject or one topic undergrad you have your subjects and sometimes it's not always easy to see how each individual subject connects to one another until after you've done them all so one time you might be learning about deviance and then the next semester you might be learning about professional academic skills or something like that and in hindsight i'm like oh yeah i understand how those things all fit together but at the time the assessments because it's assessment one assessment two they seem to cover different topics and although there's a general theme usually you know they're quite different Whereas with an honours project, everything you do, or in the case of masters, it would be the same. You get to take this one idea, this one problem, and focus on it in many different ways. So you might have your general, I think, research methods classes in your masters as well, but it'll still be centered around things that are still relevant to your topic. And it's a lot easier when it's practical, right? So learning stats in a vacuum is a bit hard. But learning stats when you need to know how to analyze your particular data set, really great, really useful. You're like, oh, cool, that's exactly what I need. So on that academic level, I really appreciated being able to take the one thing, not have to split my attention between three different seemingly isolated topics. And yeah. So let's go back to your undergrad degree. Mm. Why did you choose... Psych and justice. <laughs> uh, I was talking to my partner about this. She always finds it pretty funny when I talk about this. The reason that I chose justice is not because I was particularly set on doing a justice degree. I knew I was interested in psychology. I did a psychology subject while I was in year 12, which quite honestly scared me a bit from university. <laughs> anyway, I did that and I'm like, yeah, this psychology thing seems to be what I want to do. I, I seem to want to understand things about the world. But while I'm at uni, let's just do a double degree. And I was like, yeah, what, what would I combine it with? What seems logical? And my options were law and justice. And I'm like, hmm... You know, I could do either one of those. I've always been interested in the criminal justice system a little bit. And I looked at the little booklet they give you with all the careers. And justice had more options for careers at the end. And I'm like, well, that settles it. I'm doing justice. (laughs) And in hindsight, great choice. I don't think I would have coped in law. And I don't think I would have found it quite as interesting as justice. And I mean, evidently, because now here I am in a justice PhD. So, yeah. Was your undergrad experience what you expected? Oh, absolutely not. So throughout my high school, I was pretty lucky. I was one of those people who was relatively good at the high school. I would rock up to a class. I could absorb the information. I could regurgitate it when necessary. You know, those sorts of things. But 
university was completely terrifying. As I said, when I did that subject in year 12, I was just like almost put off from university. I was terrified. I'm like, oh no, you don't see the same people in every class. You have to meet new people all the time. These assessments are so have so much less guidance around them, particularly in psychology. They expect you to write a lot more and all of these technical skills. So on the social front, very different, and then academically very different as well. And yeah, so it started my first year of university and the justice subjects were a little bit more easier for me because I was able to understand. There were some less technical terms and I think the justice degree does a good job of more seamlessly tying together each of the units. Your first year units seem to make are a bit more cohesive than Psych, which is Psych 101 and then, you know, Psych 101B in semester two and you're like, it has the same textbook, how can this be different content sort of deal? So I started off relatively strong. I still got relatively good grades. I accidentally did a second year Psych subject in semester one, which was a terrible mistake. I had five subjects in semester one and absolutely not a good idea. But instead of realizing that and realizing that you only need to do four subjects a semester, I just did it anyway. And probably to my detriment, I think I didn't do too well in, in that particular unit. But yeah, then semester two rolled around, same deal. And then second year, from that point, I'd been living at home. And during my first year of university, my partner, she um, was kind of struggling with homelessness, kind of was struggling with homelessness. At the time, she was unable to live with one of her parents because of a domestic violence situation, and the other parent struggles a little bit with alcoholism. So neither parent was capable nor willing to really take care of her or provide her with the necessary things, and so we had to react to that situation. And it was really difficult because although it may have seemed simple for us to be like, oh yeah, we'll just come live with me and my family, yeah, unfortunately that because of my home situation that wasn't exactly feasible. So my partner, after, gee, it took months, so yeah, probably about four or five months of just constantly applying for different services um, for young people in need of housing. We finally ended up with my partner getting into Brisbane Youth Services Youth Emergency Accommodation because she was a little bit more independent. She was able to go straight to the independent living situation. So had to process all the Centrelink paperwork, had a lot of help around that because Centrelink paperwork is an absolute nightmare and eventually was able to move into the private rental space. So that happened when I was in second year uni. She finally had a private rental space with another person from her university. And yeah. And then for me in second year, for some reason, did not to follow suit or anything, uh, my home became unsafe to live in. Um, it had sort of always been that way. There were a lot of negative behaviors and a lot of complicated things going on in the background and it took me a long while to figure out that was the case and I think my partner's experiences of reflecting on what what she had experienced made me a little bit more aware that actually maybe my situation was also kind of really bad and yeah so my home in about semester one year two became unsafe to live in and my residential address became my partner's car my car had recently died <laughs> and I could not live, I could not afford private rent. 
So even if I could have moved in with my partner immediately, um, I could not afford it for just both of us. And because of the situation with her housemate, it wasn't feasible for me to live there permanently either. So it was kind of a lot of back and forth between, yeah, the, the car and my partner's house at the time. And I had a job at the time. I was able to pick up some private tutoring work. So I would drive to, I think it was at the time, maybe 10 different students' houses a week, teach them English and math and make my money that way because when you so i didn't have retail experience throughout high school and it's really hard as a 18 19 year old with no retail experience to get a retail job so here i am doing that tutoring and then so applying for centrelink was really the only option i had and the process for applying for centrelink to explain why you can't live at home requires you to ask your parent to fill in the paperwork explaining why it is not safe for you to be at home. So what they wanted me to do was to go to my parent, give them this paperwork, and explain all of the terrible and awful things that were happening. And then Centrelink would say, yeah, cool, that does make sense. It does sound like it's unreasonable to live at home. Now, the other alternative is that you get a psychologist or some sort of professional who's seen you for a long time, and your other parent to fill in the the paperwork. But for me, I had a psychologist that I'd been seeing for a while. Luckily, I could afford it because of, again, discounts and things. But my other parent could not fill in that paperwork because they didn't live in Queensland and didn't really know anything about the situation. So after, like, it was about six weeks of just going back and forth to this and being like, look, I can't for my own safety, get my parent to fill in this paperwork. That is not possible. And after you know that long of just saying that to them, they were like, oh, well, we have this uh, youth worker. Maybe they can help you out. And the youth worker, what the youth worker does is really speeds up that process of trying to apply for that Centrelink. I had my psychologist write out a bit of a statement and in conjunction with the youth worker's support, you could finally get you $412 a fortnight, which sounds like a lot if you live at home, but, you know, when your rent is... <laughs> this is 2016, right? So my rent was 355 then. It's probably like 480 now. So, yeah, I basically was this weird borderline homelessness i mean it was homelessness but it's not what a lot of people would immediately think of when when they think of homelessness so yeah and when you're in that situation you can't really focus on your studies because you're just in this survival mode you're like well yeah cool assessments due and i'm you know going to get that done because i need to get that done but you don't have time to really dedicate to staring at a word document when you've also got to figure out how you're paying for rent for the next couple of weeks right and yeah and it's really fun to look at my academic transcript in hindsight you can see this perfect good scores across your your first semester semester two year one something's going on semester two uh, year two really quite not terrible results but much different to what i i would normally get 
And then right at the end of my degree, miraculously, as my circumstances outside of uni improve, my GPA drastic for that semester drastically increases. I'm able to apply myself 100% to my, my studies. And my grades reflect that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose that's one of the things about the GPA system is it doesn't reward people who improve at the end of their degree. If you make a mistake for too long of a period, it, it really does drag the whole thing down. So yeah, and I guess something to to talk about is this idea of like survivorship bias. I could tell you all the things that I did that I think might have helped me out of that situation. But to be honest, it was circumstantial and a lot of luck and a lot of things. But something that I can say that I wish I had have done differently now that I'm where I am now is reach out for more help at university. I did not make use of any of the resources that the university had uh, and nowhere near the amount that I needed. And now as a tutor where I'm you know, exposed to all the different, you know, they say, hey, if students are struggling, here are all the resources you can provide to them. Now that I have that knowledge as a student, I absolutely should have engaged with that because I think it really would have made all the difference. Why did you not? I think it's that idea of the frog being in the pot. You don't realize, you understand that university is supposed to be difficult, but you don't understand at the time just how difficult what you're experiencing is until you're in a situation where you're no longer struggling. So for me sitting here now, looking back, I'm like, how did I do it? I can't imagine how much stress I must have been under. All of the things that I had to survive, I can't believe I did that. You know, driving to 10 different strangers' houses a week to just to teach them math for an hour, sometimes driving up to 40 minutes down the road just to pay my bills in addition to cooking food with like a few dollars. So at the time, I guess I was like, I, I could try and reach out, but surely maybe other people are experiencing it and it's not that bad. The other thing is that it can be really difficult to know when you need that help as well. So like I said, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, this is bad, but I suppose this is normal. A lot of people who would try to leave home normally, they wouldn't have this money, you know, all of those sorts of things. And now that I'm sitting here, no, that's not true. Absolutely, if your situation even sounds remotely like that, absolutely get help. And the help services here won't know you need help unless you tell them, which is really hard, but it, it pays off if you do reach out because there's so many resources available. Why did you just not quit? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, to be honest, I guess for me, the... <laughs> One of the things is that in from a perspective of Centrelink and paying my bills, if I dropped out of university, those payments immediately disappeared and you would go onto the, I think, I don't know what the job seeker situation was like, but it would have been a whole load of more paperwork and it would risk not being approved and just trying to find a job. I was applying for different things, but really struggled because uh, if you say that you have private tutoring experience you can teach people complex equations to year 12 students they don't care they want to know whether you can operate a cash register and although i know as a person that i would pick that up a couple of days max uh, unfortunately someone behind the counter who works there trying to make that decision doesn't know that so my options outside of uni were the reason were, were so dire that i was like well i guess i'm here now <laughs> so i might as well keep going and yeah 
fortunately for me, I managed to scrape enough good grades to qualify for the Justice Honours. Psych Honours, on the other hand, I would have liked to have had the opportunity to think about going into Psych Honours, but because of that GPA system with a lot of those core subjects, I was <laughs> nowhere near, unfortunately, qualifying for that. And in hindsight, again, although I still would have pursued justice because um, I prefer research, I would have liked to have had that option. And so hindsight, those resources helping me through understanding those things, helping me get my grades up actually being able to attend university without going between three different people's houses to make money and all of those things. So. Why don't you talk about textbooks and um, computer access and all of those kind of practical things that students need? Yeah, well, that is an excellent question. What did I do? Textbooks? I For semester one, I managed to get onto some secondhand textbooks, but I found the process for that personally a little bit tough because you got a, it's a it, I think it's a loan it was a loan system I think and you had to give it back and you had to maintain it and you know when you've got so many things going on keeping track of a book in your house while you're trying to you know, <laughs> balance so many things if I lost it I would feel terrible because that's like the one of the only copies they have for other people so for me. I had applied for one of the equity scholarships here at QUT, and so that gives you enough money to buy the textbooks for each of the units. But yeah, in terms of like access to a computer, I went to the library, which probably that's really hard to do, right? Because that means every time you want to study, anytime you want to focus on your uni, you have to go out in public, which is hard because... If you wanted to sit down at 9.30 p.m. after you've had dinner or something and work on your assessment, you have to go outside, catch public transport to a public place, hope that it's open, and if it is open, hopefully there are enough reasonable people around that it's not that it's not a dangerous experience. And so that's very discouraging, and most of the time I didn't. <laughs> it is a wonder that I got the grades that I did, to be honest. I think I'm very fortunate that my memory is very good when i apply myself i can extrapolate from very limited amounts of information and yeah um yeah i don't really know how i do it i just did yeah so what would be your top tips for students in an undergraduate degree now struggling with getting through you said reach out for help. What are some of the what are some of the things that got you through? Gee, <laughs> I have no idea. Like, I think for me, the way I remember the situation is, I literally just became so detached that it was like watching someone in third person. Right, you go through the motions of getting up every day, going to your workplace because you have to, teaching someone. In my case, teaching someone. And then trying to put together an assessment. I'm, you know, trying to put those things together. I think for me, I was very fortunate to have my partner who we both were just struggling with the same things. And that helps. It's both a positive and a negative, right? So it helps because there's someone who understands. We're, we were going through that together. It was both of us just trying to fend off like the, the risk of homelessness once again and 
trying to just get ourselves in a better position than what we were dealt with in life. And we knew that university for us was most likely going to be the easiest way. So that was our motivation primarily. And yeah, we did not go out a lot. We didn't go to, you know, our, our leisure activities were <laughs> maybe watch a movie at South Bank. I think back then it was $5 for students sort of deal and find the cheapest things you can do and just hope it gets better. And it does if you are able to stick at it. But a little while ago, at the start of my PhD, I was given the position, the opportunity to review people's applications for reapplying to university after they've been excluded for academic poor academic performance and a lot of those situations looked like mine so these people were people that for some reason or another were unable to keep up with their studies and so the university's response is that if you get a low enough GPA for a long enough time they threaten you with exclusion and those sort of things and these people have come back from that and in a lot of these cases sometimes it is okay to take a break it is okay to actually stop and if it's possible if it is feasible with work put a temporary pause on the study because the study isn't going anywhere but your physical and mental health could right if you're absolutely overwhelmed between potentially multiple different jobs and university explore if you can financially those part-time options or potentially taking a break knowing that you can always come back because in a lot of those situations that I was reviewing those people had done just that and it worked absolute wonders for them you could see during the times where they had been able to get themselves in this better position how much better they would perform versus if they tried to go back too soon sort of thing now for me <laughs> I didn't obviously follow that advice because of both practical and, and other reasons but yeah that was again in hindsight i was able to see other people in that situation and all the things that the resources that they potentially had that i for some reason refused to accept <laughs> so now that you're in a better space mm. what do you do to take care of yourself oh yeah well what do i do to take care of myself i enjoy getting paid a reasonable amount to go to work <laughs> I, I just, you know, when people say, oh, money isn't everything, but like just a livable wage is. It's amazing how much of a difference it makes when you don't have to worry anywhere near as much about money as, as what I did, as what my partner and I both did. Recently, we were able to buy a house somehow. I, I don't know how recently. Like, that doesn't feel real. That doesn't seem like something we should have been able to do, but we did because. In a way, our experiences have taught us that <laughs> to, to, to save like crazy. <laughs> like, um, you know, we, we had to be very disciplined with the way that we spend money and the way we saved money and all of those things. So as unfortunate as our situations were, I suppose the bright side is that we were able to establish healthy or, or beneficial financial and emotional systems that have helped us through. I would go for walks in the botanical gardens while listening to music. That's one of the things that I do to both physically and sort of mentally just relax and de-stress a bit if things become overwhelming. In fact, at the start of my PhD, when I was going through all of those different topics that I possibly could have been choosing between, 
that was one of the things that really helped me. It was getting out away from my desk. It was walking out in the breeze or in the sun and just thinking in a place that wasn't the office while listening to the music and just taking that time. And it's underrated. It, <laughs> it's so frustrating when you hear like regular exercise and eating healthy is something that makes you happy. And you listen to that and you're like, yeah, right. And then you do it and then it does. And you're like, yeah, I suppose that checks out. <laughs> oh, it's frustrating, but it is good. And um, the other thing that I do, speaking of food, is that I, at the start through necessity, learned how to cook, but now it's become a passion. It's something that I do to take care of myself and my partner. Like recently I discovered a recipe for ricotta gnocchi. So it's gnocchi made from like a, a ricotta instead of potato. It's so much easier than dealing with hot potato. Like potato, it falls apart terrible. You have to wait for it to cool. But using ricotta and like a a really soft, thin, sifted flour and an egg and maybe some shredded parmesan or whatever into the dough makes that great. And for me, that's a way that I can take care of myself and my partner. It keeps us happy. Good food keeps you relatively healthy, not just not physically, but just feeling good after a meal, like that's so important. And so when I was in that undergrad situation, I would still take every opportunity to try and find the meals that were both cheap and were just going to make us feel good. Because for a while there, you're you're looking at your your bank account while you're in the supermarket and you're like, damn, a $5 Domino's pizza gets me three meals. And here I am paying meat meat is expensive what's with that you know so by not choice you end up vegetarian a lot of the time you put lentils in your bolognese instead of meat and make a big batch of it you freeze it and that's what you eat for the next month and a half and it's terrible you shouldn't have to do that but you know that's what we did i find a lot of people who have had similar experiences to me Sometimes they will say things like, well, that's just what you have to do. And from a utilitarian perspective, sure, yeah, those things help you save money. But you should not have to do that. There is no situation where I think a human being should have to walk into a supermarket and have their options limited by the amount of money in their bank account, right? Like, you realize how expensive fruit and vegetables are, things you don't think about. When broccoli, like, you care about how much broccoli is per kilo. You're like, what? Yeah. So I guess to wind up, Mm. what's your top tips for students in how to succeed as an undergrad? Okay. So as I said, reach out for help. If approaching someone at a university facility seems a little bit daunting, your tutors genuinely will help you. We are human beings, just like the rest of us, and we we have all of these you know things, things we put up on slides to say, contact any of these people. We'll provide you with that in a one-on-one conversation if you need to. So if you're worried about going to high queue or whatever, try your tutor first. They'll be able to recommend unit coordinators as well. As I said, academics, real people, and <laughs> they will understand at least to some extent. The other thing is to not be too harsh on yourself, right? University is hard. It's not supposed to be easy. Not everyone is supposed to get a seven. Statistically, we end up with the normal distribution because that's just how the world tends to work. Not because any other reasons, but that's just what happens. If you're getting, if you're passing your units, be proud of that. Don't put yourself down because a pass mark 
means that you understood the content enough to say, yes, you have the requirements. When it comes down to internships, if you're able to, absolutely seek out those opportunities where you can and where it's feasible, but make sure that it's through a charity or through a university um, setting. Don't try to look for privatized internships because my partner found this through her degree mostly, but internships through private companies can sometimes be exploitative in the sense that if they're not through university and they don't count towards your degree or they're not for a charity, then they should be paying you. So be wary of those things. So make sure if you are going to get an internship or workplace experience, try to go through the university um, first. And then if not, consider charities because charities will normally restrict those to short periods of time and they'll be very understanding about your time as well. Shark, I'm really glad that you made it through. I'm really glad you're here. And I'm super stoked to have had this opportunity to talk to you today. Thanks so much. Thank you. This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Dr. Jody Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from QUT. Thank you for listening. <laughs>